This week on the Three Rings Podcast. This industry tends to be scared of change. I think everybody wants to be the boss, but nobody wants the responsibility that comes with being the boss. One of the things that technology has given us is given us much, much faster access to information. But mastering that information still takes the same amount of time as it did 100 years ago. Welcome to the 14th episode of the Three Rings podcast. My name's Stuart Bishop. I'm here with my fellow director, Bailey J. Muir. Before we get into this week's video, hit subscribe on the channel, click the like button and turn on your notification bell so you know all about next week's episode. So on this week's episode, we have a very special guest in Rick Chia. Rick is at the forefront of the worldwide art and entertainment scene having enjoyed a storied career at the highest level spanning performance, creative, and business. From casting to Cirque du Soleil, dancing with the La 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 Human Steps, acting in Hollywood movies, and revolutionizing choreography rights, Rick has done it all whilst accumulating unparalleled knowledge and wisdom on the industry's inner workings. Rick is currently undergoing new business ventures with Jamar Gig, Choreography Online, and the IODC, as he continues to drive the industry into the future. Hey, Rick, how's it going? It's going good. It's going good. How are you? Very, very good. Let me introduce you to Bailey. You, you guys have never met before, have you? No, this is the first time, I believe. Hey, Rick, good to meet you. So, so just um, before we delve into our questions, where, where, where are you today? You're, you're actually in Canada, aren't you? Whereabouts are I'm in Canada on the East Coast, uh, Montreal, Quebec. Uh, Canada. It's the only um, fully, fully French-speaking province in Canada. Although many do speak French. Um, and, and are you fully? Do you fully speak French as well? I do. I do. Well done, Rick. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what time is it there at the moment? It's a little after nine a.m., so not too early. Uh, nice snowy morning. Oh, it's snowing. Well, it did snow. And actually, um, yesterday we had a little bit of wetness, so now it's kind of turning all to ice. Ah, well, we've we have just uh, we've just literally got over a snowy period, and we're now into it's twelve degrees out there, which is like for England at the moment. It's it, it feels like summer. Um, yeah, twelve degrees is very hot for winter here. First of all, we want to say a big thank you for coming on the podcast, but also um, thank you for we. Uh, Bailey had a very ex unexpected trip foisted upon him where he had to go to sunny Benidorm. Um, so you were very gracious in letting us postpone. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, so, yeah, so Bailey's had a week of uh, week of sun. I know. I'm here 12 degrees now and it feels freezing from being away. But yeah, big thank you to you for that, Rick. Hugely appreciated. But glad My to be pleasure. on no with problem. you now. So, Rick, let's get into it. We've got loads of questions for you. Um, we want to, we, with our guest ones, um, we normally will go on for about an hour and a half, but we, we, we don't want to put any limits on it. So we want to just get these questions out. There's, um, there's things that both me and Bailey want to talk to you about casting wise, because we, um, I've, we've known each other for, I don't know, what is it, maybe five or six years. Um, yeah, it's been quite a while. The last time we saw each other, it was, I can't even remember. Well, I, I tell you how we, how we met. You put out, um, I think you put out some kind of mail shot or something asking for advice or, or something to do with the UK casting injury, or you were looking 
for for dancers or you were looking for talent or something i came back with um how i kind of normally respond and you were quite interested by my response um <laughs> And, and and we then went to the W Hotel. Do you remember? We had, a, I think we either had a meal or, or a drink. And we, we had both. Yes, it was fascinating. Um, it was a great conversation. I think you were being told a lot of things the same at the time. And I, and I, I was always on, I'm always on sort of, you know, throughout the years, crusades about how the industry should be. So <laughs> I think I possibly came out with something different, which perhaps interested you much more. Well, I'm always interested in in anyone trying to move this industry forward. I think, I think um, as as much as I love the industry and as much as I love dance and um, and I've been it in it my entire life, I do think that uh, this industry tends to be scared of change, and um, and that is the exactly the thing that we've always needed. You know, we there are other. Um, artistic disciplines that have gone way past us. You know, you look at music and the, and everything they've done with their technology and the way they run things, the way they manage copyright is, and, and even music. I remember back in uh, 2000, I was I was starting a, a nonprofit record label and I was surprised at how backwards the music industry was. Um, and they're ahead of us. So yeah, I, I that's why I think that, that, you know, to listen to you talk about, um, your ideas of moving the industry forward and then sharing with you some of my ideas of how to move the industry forward. I thought it was interesting because it was the fact that we were wanting to move the industry forward. And, and you know, and I, I, I think with more people trying to do that, we can come up with the even better ideas. Oh my word. You Well, wait until you hear Bailey's ideas. Um, <laughs> the, the, the reason why me and Bailey are together is because he emailed me as I was getting to a point where I was like I've, I've run my agency for 20 22 years um the pandemic had happened and I was just like I'd been paying for an office for two years with no one going in and I felt like I was losing a little bit of uh, inspiration Bailey emailed me uh, a business idea and in between the lines I could I could see someone who had the same type of ideas, but was coming from more of a, a youthful um, and more on-trend kind of uh, way of thinking. And um, when we get into some of the casting questions later, I'll, I'll let you take over, Bailey, because um, you're, I can tell already this is going to be fascinating. But mm. for our viewers um, who, who have no idea um, as much as... Um, you are a very well-known person within the entertainment industry. Um, there will be a lot of people watching who who won't know who you are and no, no, won't know the incredible things that you've done. So let's start at the start um, and ask who or what inspired you um, to, to dance and just a little bit about your initial background in life. Um, you're not Canadian, I can tell. I, I, I am now. I have oh, dual no. citizenships. I was born and raised in the United States. So now I have dual citizenship. And where is your family? Uh, orig What's your original heritage? My parents come from Indonesia, um, okay. from both mixed, uh, mixed families. So both of them are Chinese-Indonesian, so a mix of Chinese and Indonesian. Um, they came to the United States, and I was born in uh, the Midwest of all places, the middle of nowhere, you know, in, in Missouri, because my 
father was studying horticulture at the University of Missouri. And um, that, that was my start. But I didn't, I didn't really start dancing until the family moved down to Florida um, when I was eight or nine. And that's when the whole dance thing started. Did you actually, um, like, because it's very different in England, we have a, a, like a proper college structure. How did you get into dance? And how did that get you to sort of being a, a, a professional? Well, that's a really long story. I mean, in, in the States, it's a little different. Like most of the dance studios are, um, uh, most of the dance training is, is private. You know, there, there is no, you know, we don't have that uh, regimented structure or any sort of association or, or government body that oversees anything quality. So as far as finding good training, um, aside from, you know, the very well-known schools like Juilliard or, you know, Point Park um, or um, University of North Carolina School of the Arts, you're, it's hit and miss, you know, and if you're a parent and you don't know anything about dance, you're just gonna look up dance school and um, and say, oh, here's a dance school. Is the price right? We'll we'll put you in. So, um, so you get people who are um, you can get people who 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 are you know come from a tiny town in the middle of nowhere that just happens to have good training and they become amazing. And you're like, what? You're from this tiny town that no one's ever heard of. Um, and you can have people in really big cities and they got terrible training. It's, it's kind of hit and miss until, until a reputation is built for a school. So um, I grew up in a small town called Gainesville in Florida that had a giant university. So it was kind of a mix between backwoods, um, you know, southern, uh, uh, southern population and a very educated and forward thinking, you know, university pop population. Um, and there were, I think there were only two dance schools in the whole city. Um, I picked one or my parents picked one and, and that's where I went. I mean, I started, um, but before that school, I just started in tap. You know, I used to, my parents used to watch this show called the Lawrence Welk show. Um, and there was this tap dancer and I used to jump around whenever I saw it. And my mom just said, well, do you want to take tap lessons? And I was like, yes. And so it was just some community um, tap lesson, you know, thing that they offered to, to just people who want to move. And, um, and I really liked it. Eventually, um, teacher said, well, you, you know, it would be good to take some jazz to help you with your tap, with the movements, you know. And that's when we went to this school. And then it just snowballed from there after jazz, you know, which I, I actually hated at the beginning. Uh, and then eventually learned to like it. And then the teachers there said, well, to, to improve your jazz, you need to take ballet. And then from there, it just went to like modern to hip hop. And, and before you know it, I, you know, working towards a professional career. That's kind of ba how I got into it. Ba Bailey, you, you're, you're a tap man, aren't you? I've, ne I've never yeah. been a tapper, but that's how you got into it as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I love my tap dance. That's very much me. So I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on more of a wider side of the training scene, Rick, whilst we're in this sort of training section. Mm -hmm. um, as Stuart mentioned, obviously in the UK, we have a very sort of regimented system for training where, like your Juilliard in the US, mm -hmm. all of our colleges are very much like that. As I've seen in the US, as you're describing, you have way more of like a studio scene. Now, in the UK right now, we have 
a number of things going on, which is like watering down the standard of that trading. And it is starting mm. to bring up questions of whether we should be copying a US model, an Australian model. I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on growing up through that system and also now in your authority position, looking back down on it. What is your feeling on that studio system? Do you feel it would benefit the US to have that more structured system? Or do you think it may benefit the UK to move to more of an unstructured studio system? What would your I, feelings be on that? Uh, I, I have a lot of feelings on that, actually. I, I, I really think that um, uh, to change one to the other is a little oversimplified mm. because there are advantages to both. Like on the one hand, like I said, in the U.S. system, it's hit and miss. You, you, you know, anybody can open a dance studio. You don't have to actually know anything to open a dance studio, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's the same in Canada, actually. Um, so you, you, unfortunately, you have like huge numbers of studios run by people who have never had a dance career, who have had um, very little training, you know, and they pick teachers. I mean, if you if you haven't had the career, you haven't had the training, you haven't, how are you going to? pick good teachers right so um and then on 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 the other hand um one of the problems with being too regimented is that um first of all who's who's regimenting so if if you end up with a bunch of administrators and they're the ones you know um setting the standards like do they really know dance you know and um and even if you do once you get into this regimented system and we see this a lot with universities um, not just in the UK, but everywhere, um, it becomes very hard to change things. Um, and uh, if you look at sports, you see that the training has evolved immensely since in the last 50 years. You know, they follow science and they learn new things, they learn new things about the body and they change, you know, um, and they change rather quickly because um, you have country backings and you send these people to the Olympics and they want to win. So they want to uh, have the best training possible. Now, if you look into dance, we've been doing the same thing for the last 400 years. You know, where it's kind of like beating a dead horse and we're not, um, and I see teachers giving students corrections that they heard their teachers tell them without analyzing, does this correction actually apply to this student? You know, it's just kind of, well, I just repeat the same things. And we don't take science into account. Like the way we train, has you know doesn't have anything to do with how the body actually learns so um to to and it and it goes beyond um anatomy i know um there are some teachers that you know they they apply anatomical concepts which is great but it's more than that it, it has to do with how how muscles actually improve how they rebuild how do they how do the muscles learn and then how do they build and when um, which we don't integrate into dance training at all, but that is that is the the core of improvement is knowing how that works. Oh, Rick, I feel like we're going to just go off script here, but massively. <laughs> um, so, what comes to my mind there is then, oh, and we don't need to be go. We don't need to go too controversial. Um, well, you you talk however you want. When when you talk like that, what happens then with the, the sort of the trend which is now um out at the moment where it's um obviously you know being diverse is great that that's amazing but when it comes to dance there's um there seems to be a trend now that 
it's being celebrated more um, the people who are not so trained. So, mm. for example, let's just, well, big, big dancers, basically. Mm. So um, I've always been, you know, I don't think it's healthy for dancers to be, to you know, to be, uh, to be massive, to be big. Um, mm. When you're talking about science, you're talking about what's, you know, the best way to, I presume you're talking about the best way to, to improve from injury, the, to gain strength, to be able to get those 10 pirouettes. Um, right where does science come when a lot of the time we're being pushed and told that we have to have i don't know the you know on trend is 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 a dancer of a bigger size for example yeah i think i think that's now we're getting into economics because um you know some we're also in living in a world of instagram where people are making a lot of money just because they have a lot of followers and on instagram mm -hmm. um it's very easy to look good in 30 seconds or 60 seconds right but if you um, if your aim is just to get a whole bunch of eyes on a product, and so you go to an influencer and say, "Can you, you know, mention my my product?" It's one thing, right? But if you go, "We want this person in our show," well, a show is going to be longer than thirty seconds. So if this person can just do a flash and um, on video but then you put them in a show where they're going to be working and you know how it is in production, you know, while you're working, they can be 10, 14 hour days. And then they have to be able to get through a two hour show from beginning to end night after night, day after day. Now that's difficult to do if you don't have the technique. And um, we did have this kind of this, um, uh, a, a similar situation with hip hop dancers in a show we did in Vegas where um, we got the best from LA um, and we get them in the show. And then within, you know, a couple of months, everybody was injured, you know, because mm -hmm. they didn't know how to warm up. They didn't know how to stretch. They didn't know how to take care of their bodies, you know, and then that incurs huge cost to the production company because you got to replace them, but you still got to pay them, you know, their salaries plus physio that, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so I think there is um, context is everything. Like, what are we talking about here? Um, so that that whole influencer model, you know, um, people who don't necessarily have training, but they have something else, whatever it is, charisma, or they have, you know, um, to use a, a, a pejorative term, you know, the one trick pony, like the, the person who can get their leg up here, but that's pretty much all they can do, or they can do 10 pirouettes, but they can't do anything else. Um, you know, what's your objective? You know, is, is it just that the Instagram thing? Okay, fine, whatever. But um, do you actually want to have a career? Do you want to be in front of live audiences? Do you want to do an actual show? Well, then you have to do the work. I mean, one of the things that technology has given us is given us much, much faster access to information. But mastering that information still takes the same amount of time as it did 100 years ago. You know, you can't get around that. Mm. So, 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 so do, sorry, buddy. So do you think then... The, the training is good enough today because what we're finding um, is when we're being sent CVs and photos, dancers have been through two to three years, um, if it's UK-based, three years um, minimum sort of training, but they're not, they're not 
you know, at the end, at the end of my three years, I was built like a, a brick shit house, and and you know, and, I, and I, I, that was my ultimate peak of being a dancer. I could do eight pirouettes on either side. I was, you know, and it, it, it's downhill from there as you don't as, as you don't um, sort of you know keep it up. But when they're coming out of training and they're they're overweight, um, is that because we're we're not finding new ways of inspiring in the teaching or is it that they're just not allowed to you know poke them and touch them and do these things anymore what do you think about that um i i think there are a lot of reasons and a lot of um and i i don't think it's 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 very hard to generalize because i think there are there are different um i i i do think that there are some um um very specific situations that are different um part of it first of all we have to we have to define what what overweight is because mm. there's there's actual overweight and then there is someone who just happens to be built bigger and yeah. you have to distinguish the two you know some people are just built with a different body shape it's healthy um and that's what you work with that's what you work with but what does that mean that means like every person's center of gravity is going to be in a different place you know, their body position is going to be, it, it has to be with respect, like when you're working with someone's body position, it has to be with respect to how their body's built. You can't say, oh, your hips have to be here. Everyone has to put their hips in the same place. That doesn't work because everyone is built differently. And even two people who are built the same, they might have a different weight distribution. Like one might have denser muscles in the legs and the other one more in the arms. That changes um, your your center of gravity as well. So there's that, and then there is the. Um, I think I think we do, and I've heard this from a lot of teachers, and I kind of observe it myself. And once again, I have to generalize because I can't go into each specific situation of everybody in the world. Um, I do think that we live in a world of instant gratification, and I think there's a lot of people who don't. I mean, doing all the the real heavy training is kind of like well that's too much trouble you know i just want to like i want to get to you know the prize without having to go through all the steps because those steps are uncomfortable but anything that's worth having is 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 worth working for is worth going through discomfort for and i think that's a little bit of the mentality that i think we've lost in the last maybe 10 20 years mm -hmm. An observation I would make, I often feel like as a dance industry, we sit in like an awkward space between being an athlete and being an entertainer. And mm. sometimes we don't quite know where to place ourselves. So when I look at stuff around these sort of topics with like in sports, you'd have a sports scientist. That mm. feels like something that is very much missing from dance, as you were kind of touching on earlier on. And I often wonder how we can push dance to a point that we get those people, because like you're saying, we are all built differently. The way one person needs to align their body is very different than another. What is overweight to one person is different than another. So it's right. finding the people we need in this additional infrastructure to actually then allow dance to almost be taught properly. Back to, as you were mm. saying, we've taught it the same way for 400 years. Right. It's that lacking infrastructure that we know we now can do, but still somehow don't do. How do you feel we could start to achieve something in the dance industry that we can actually start to attract maybe someone currently working as a sports scientist to change from basketball, from football, and come and look at dance instead? Well, I, I actually know people in the medical field who, um, who uh, are working on uh, education 
that kind of education for dancers. Um, and I think like everything, it all comes from the training and the mentality. So me growing up as a dancer, and I, I've seen this um, even today, uh, the training is, is tends to be very much like, okay, don't say anything, just do what I do, you know, um, and, 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 and don't talk back, don't question, right? Um, but the, 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 the evolution of anything has to, comes from questioning. You have to question the status quo. You have to question whether or not your, your teacher's making sense. And I've, I, I, I remember going through, so I, I was always a, you know, a science guy. I loved science growing up. And when I went to university, my mother always said, you know, maybe you should study something different just in case you break your leg, you know, your career, dance career goes down tubes. Um, so I went into physics. You know, I didn't know what to do. I liked physics. I went into physics. Um, physics has helped me understand a lot about a lot of things. And it's um, it's kind of reinforced the things that teachers used to say to me that didn't make didn't make any sense. You know, and and then knowing physics has helped me go, well, I know that won't work because physically it's impossible, you know, just the laws of physics. So um I, 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 I think that, you know, education is going to, you know, um, and that, it, that comes from questioning, you know, the only way, um, let me just go off track a bit to come back on track, is that when I was uh, 20, 21, um, I didn't feel like my technique was where it should be. I'd already started working professionally, and I actually took myself out of the professional world to enroll uh, one year in the Boston Ballet School to be able to correct uh, my technical problems, right? It's kind of a blow to an ego at 21 to go into a class with you know, 16, 17 year olds, but knowing that this is gonna help me, and it did, right? Um, so I had to do a lot of that correction. Um, and, and so uh, that comes from questioning the status quo. Like otherwise I could have just, banging my head against the, uh, uh, you know, brick wall saying, I actually know what I'm doing. I can't do it, but theoretically I know, right. <laughs> which is, which wasn't the case. So I think um, part of it is, is, is that the kids do need to question. Part of it is, I think that the kids do need to study other things outside of dance because anything and everything that you learn from other uh, disciplines can help you get and gain insight into other things you do so physics has helped me gain insight in business in dance in everything you know things that i do you know um i was a tennis player a uh, musician i've taken a lot of the things that i've learned and all those things and i've applied it to dance because there are a lot of similarities you know um innovation is about connecting the dots it's not about necessarily inventing something new it's seeing things that are linked and then putting them together and that's what I try to do Rick we are smiling because it feels like it feels like you've watched all of our episodes of our podcast because what <laughs> you just said there is like what we're always trying to put out um and we're always trying to encourage our dancers we always say you know if you're in a room and you're with a producer and a director they you know they uh, we'll need more of a conversation than um, mentioning who won L Love Island or mm -hmm. um, an Instagram, you know, what's your in fun, in you know, favorite Instagram filter or something like that. 
and it's it's that extra it's that extra layer of whether it's knowledge or consciousness or just being which will get you you know through the door and get people liking you because everyone's technique is kind of the same you know yes there'll be some who are a little bit better and some a little bit worse but it's you know if you're going to be on a long job with someone it's it's so important that you get on with them and they can get on with everybody else and yeah so if it, it, we're very aligned with this it, it it feels like we're talking to the Dalai Lama of dance or something here that's <laughs> what it feels like it's very wise um I want to take it back to uh just before you become a professional um you're a guy during when is this during the 80s or 90s that that was the uh, let's see that that was the 80s yes so you're a little bit you're a bit older than me um what was it like then to be a boy or a man uh, wanting to dance? Because for me in the 90s, we were still five, ten years away from in the UK. We had groups like Diversity and Flawless who suddenly right. made dance popular. Um, what, you know, why was there struggles? What was what, what was it like being a, a guy in America um you know dance were you in canada at that point no i was in the united states united states so so what was it like being a a guy into dance it was challenging (laughs) uh challenging um directly and indirectly um yes there was a stigma about um about uh men dancing uh, luckily in you know in high school i was in the honors classes and the the people in the honors programs were a little more intelligent and were able to to recognize the value and and you know of, of me being you know in dance instead of like football or something like most people in the in the honors courses were not doing football you know so um you know they were more in like science going to science fairs and that kind of thing but um uh, or literary fairs um and I, I used to get the question a lot when I started, you know, early on was a professional and, and you would meet new people and, and they would ask, you know, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a dancer. And they just perplexed look on their face. Like, um, what do you mean a dancer? Oh, oh you're a stripper? Like, <laughs> no, I'm an actual dancer. Was, oh, you, you're, you teach? Like, no, I actually dance. It is a profession and that's what I do. <laughs> you know? um, so I got a lot of that. But um, I I think that um, as far as people making fun, um, I, I I actually think that my younger brother got it more than me. He was in tennis, you know, and so I think he would occasionally meet these people who'd make fun of the fact that his brother was doing ballet, you know, or doing you know dance, jazz, whatever, um, which was I didn't like. I mean, it, it was almost like it was, you know, I felt it just as much because I was like, well, my brother shouldn't have to deal with, with, you know, the fact that I've chosen dance. I mean, that's kind of bad, you know, so, um, but yeah, it was, it was difficult. It was difficult in that sense. Um, uh, one of the things that was advantageous about being a guy, though, is that there were so few guys compared to the women that it was a little bit easier to get work, you know, especially company work because they were always desperately looking for guys and 
to the point of even like hiring non-dancers to 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 go on stage because they just didn't have you know these companies couldn't find enough actual male dancers so in that respect i have to take the good with the bad right so that that kind of helped me a little bit too i always find this so fascinating because i almost come from that first era that it like become like i guess normal for guys to dance Mm-hmm. so I was always like prepped by teachers and by family and stuff when I was starting to dance like oh you're gonna get this you're gonna get this name calling this bullying and I never faced it and I often feel like it's something that like I'm missing that that like element that shapes the character of a male dancer that so many before got I mean like such as when I went to college we had our boys changing room there and none of us actually could fit in the changing room together because it had obviously been built for this era before where there would not have been the quantity. It's so fascinating for me from that, just a generation ahead, how different that was, but in such a close time period. So well, to, I, I, I actually on. think that, that um, sorry to interrupt, uh, that oh, not all. There, there, there's, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with uh, reality TV, um, mm. which has contributed largely to the, pop, the, the popularity of, of dance, you know, in the, in the 90s, the new era, right? Um, it, it it is no longer um, questioned that you would be a professional dancer, which is good. But at the same time, everyone tends to equate dance with what they see on like "So You Think You Could Dance" or you know, America's Got Talent. Those shows, which tend to be kind of the same thing all the time, right? So that mm-hmm. you don't see a whole lot of new avant garde people pushing the you know, pushing pushing the envelope in you know so you think you can dance it's it's all going to be pretty much the same thing so that's where you get the you know the positive and the negative but i think the positive you know being legitimized now by reality tv is better than not being legitimized at all yeah there definitely is something going on there where it's like overpopulized it isn't there it's like it's fixed some of the issues but it's brought its own issues with it as well which is such a fascinating thing to look at so to keep the conversation pushing along, I now want to move us towards you becoming a professional dancer. Obviously, you started with La La Human Steps. However, before we get to that, I'd love to hear, is there a certain moment you can identify in your training where there became a flip of you wanting to do dance professionally than maybe as a kind of hobby? Was there a specific moment? Well, I, I mean, I, I actually didn't start with La La Human Steps. That's where I ended my career. That was at the end. You know, before then, um, I I think by the time I was like maybe fourteen, um, I had already wanted to be a dancer. You know, and I was, mm-hmm. and at the time I wanted to do music theater because I was like really inspired by the old classics. You know, the White Christmases and the, you know, singing in the rains and all that. Um, and, and and so it was really like jazz that I wanted to do. And then um, at some point I just fell in love with ballet, um, and 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 then of course you know we just branched out into I used to hate modern but then you know modern going into contemporary, um, I just you know it just it just it just expanded from there right so, um, uh, I I I um, I think that my eye as a professional started at fourteen and by fifteen we were um, you know we had a, a local company. That was, you know, it was a community company, but um, with the dance studio, but um, it was mixed with the professional. They also had a professional company. And, and so, you know, the 
we would dance together with professionals. So it was, it was professional work, but for a community company. So, and then, and then, you know, when I, I danced with that professional company, that was my first job as a dancer for one year and toured with them. Um, and that's when I stopped and went to the ballet, Boston Ballet School, and then auditioned for Ballet Austin. And I was with Ballet Austin in Austin, Texas for two years. Um, and then from there, I went to Los Angeles and started working in film and TV. Um, and then it wasn't in, until after that time that I came to La La Human Steps and moved to Canada. So, um, and guest work as well. You know, everybody does guest work, you know, Christmas and all that stuff. So, so that's kind of how I, I kind of got thrown into it, the professional world. So are you seeing the La La, um, I've got it written down, La La La. Is it, how many La's are there? Three. There's three, three. La La La. Yeah. Um, was La La La, you, was that the end of your performing, but the start of your choreography or, or what? Or when did the choreography well, start? I, I've been choreographing since I was like, you know, a teen. You know, it, and it was, it was, um, and, you know, just various projects, you know, it, it was, uh, um, we had recitals, you know, the studio, we had recitals, so I would choreograph the re at the recitals, and then we had, like, also a community playhouse that needed me to choreograph, like, some musical theater and all that, and so it's been, um, you know, I've been choreographing since, since I was a teenager, um, but I think, you know, I, 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 but I, I wasn't aiming for a career in choreography at that time. I, it was something that I liked doing, always had ideas for. Um, and so I, I was always watching and watching other people's choreography. And I think, I think that's what, what got me into, you know, eventually teaching choreography today is because of 30 years of watching other people's choreography, the good, the bad, the in-between, and constantly asking myself, why do people like that? What is working in that? And why is this one not working? And really just like taking mental notes, sometimes actually writing down and just think, you know, this doesn't work. Whenever people do this, it always works. Whenever they do this, it doesn't. Why? I'm trying to dig into the why. So it's kind of, I guess, basically 30 years of research, you know, <laughs> into that. And so, um, so that's how I, I mean, it choreograph, Choreography has just always kind of been part of what I do. But since I, I never aimed to be a professional, I mean, I did professional work, but that wasn't like my main focus. So I just never really like, it was like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do it. I do it, do it. And then I just put it, I, I don't think, I don't even have stuff on my CV. I can't even remember half the stuff I've done. So. Sure. Um, so to keep moving through your career, I know something people will be fascinated by is your work with Cirque du Soleil. Mm -hmm. I know obviously with them, you've worked with them in multiple capacities. So I'd love to kind of dive into how that initially came about. What was the initial sort of introduction? How did that present within your career? Um, the, the, my, the initial reasons I, I, I looked towards Cirque du Soleil are not the reasons that ended up being why I stayed. You know, um, at, the, at the time that I started working at Cirque, I was um, I had created this nonprofit record label, um, and one of the things I wanted to do is to partner with another artistic organization or organizations. Except I didn't want to, you know, most artistic organizations don't make any money, and they don't, um, you know, they're they're always out, um, basically doing grant 
applications with no with no grant money they can't do what they do and so um, I wanted to partner with an organization that actually made money off of art um, because that's what I was looking to do was trying to make the money off of our actual activities and not just be constantly going after grants um, well in Montreal Cirque du Soleil is, was pretty much it you know, at the time, there's, there's no other artistic organization that made money. And so I actually um, signed up with a temp agency that I knew Cirque used. And that's how I got in first, um, doing, uh, of all things, uh, tour asset man management, basically inventory, tour inventory, which, um, you know, I, I respect anyone who does that because it is the most boring job in the world. And, um, and, and through then, through them because I was already inside then I could see some of the internal postings for jobs and applied for the talent scout job didn't get it the first time um, it was posted again about 11 months later something like that applied again but the second time started talking to some people that I, I knew either in the in the casting department or connected with them um, and so that's how I got my interview and that's how I got into casting and and you were there for i mean by the time we, you contacted me it felt like you were contacting as someone who would was very experienced it didn't feel like you had just got into the job um and it felt like whenever i heard anything to do with Cirque du Soleil their auditions and their castings were bigger and better and worldwide just take us through how Cirque du Soleil cast and found talent because it wasn't just they would just put out a call it, it seemed that there was a lot of behind the scenes sort of not tapping up people or do, do you know what I mean it felt like a bit there was like um more of a uh, a talent search worldwide search than just literally putting out an audition date yeah there's there's a lot there because um it's I think that the mentality of the country the company is a little different than most companies in that um they're looking to, um, I mean, the idea behind creation was to try to innovate and try to get not only the best talent, but kind of take that that talent. It comes from the way Franco Dragoni used to used to work, who was one of the originals, right? The original creator, like Mystere and you know, Treasure Island and and Kidam and all those, you know, um, the early shows in Vegas, um, where he would um, instead of saying, oh, "Okay." These are the roles we have. We need to find someone who fit this, fits this, 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 this. He would say, show me amazing talent. And then he would work with what the talent, the personalities of that talent. So he would tailor make the roles on the talent instead of saying, these are my roles. The talent has to fit these roles. Um, and I think that's um, uh, that's a large part of why Cirque Slay was so touching is because what you were seeing was the actual personality of the artists on stage and it wasn't faked like it was all genuine and on top of it there were these um, you know amazing performers so the way they cast is um largely based on on that and so um the idea of um by the time i left left cirque that they had they were signing um 1800 artist contracts per year and um and growing so to do that for every artist that you decide that you sign you know you've probably presented to an artistic director 
between three and 10 other people. And to get to those 10, you've probably seen or auditioned, you know, 10, 20 times that, right? So um, what we used to do, having that constant, you know, with the 1,800 um, roles that you have to fill every single year, if we were to do casting in the traditional way, where you say, okay, we have a casting call, we'll post it, we'll collect submissions, we'll audition, and then we'll fill the casting call, throw all that information away and start over again, we would be doing like three, four auditions every single day, you know, no weekends, which doesn't make any sense, right? So what we used to do is we used to do these um, big auditions. You know, we would, we would collect the submissions, whittle that down, and then say, we want to audition all these people. But then instead of saying, we're going to audition on this specific material for this show, we would say, um, we need to see what this artist is about. Let's see everything they can do. Let's see how they work. Let's see um, uh, how open they are. Can we get a dancer to actually do clown? Can we get a clown to actually dance? You know, like, uh, can we get, you know, uh, Olympic level gymnasts to actually become a frog, you know? And then when you're casting something, you see, okay, this person has the traits to fill this role, this role, this role. And, or we have a new creation. We need someone to, to give us this kind of essence and we can, you know, filter our database down and say, well, I have 10 people that I think fit what you're, what you're looking for, you see? So, so it, it's more efficient in, in the sense that, you know, you've got all this information in a database that you can filter down really quickly. Um, and what what the, the other advantage of doing that is that sometimes you'll get a casting call that's urgent. We need this person on stage next week. Well, by the time I get a casting call out and collect submission, you know, you're already behind. So I, I always tell this story about our, um, and this wasn't my casting call, but I it was uh, colleagues, but, um, our, our record time for for receiving a casting call to signing um, and the artist onto is two hours. And you can't do that if you haven't already um, got these people in your own database and have them like auditioned and ready to go and you know exactly what they're about. Mm. So basically, when you get the casting call, you just do your short list. It takes like two minutes and you just start contacted them are you available and interested and then bing bam boom it's done deal so that's that's how it kind of worked at Cirque so obviously your role within that it was known as an artistic talent scout would you view that as like an alternate version of a casting director uh it's it's not the the talent scout role at, at, at Cirque was um I mean, think of think of a, a casting director, but on like the role of a casting director, but on steroids. Mm -hmm. In in that you would you would do everything that a normal casting director does, but on top of that, you would scout special talent. You know, um, which for something like okay, I just need a whole bunch of um, technically skilled contemporary dancers is probably not the most efficient way to go. But if you're looking for someone who does you know something unique that no one else in the world does then that's where the scouting becomes a little more important because that's going to be more personal. You got to meet them after the show, talk to them. That's a little, that's a little different. Um, and then there's um, 
one of the things that the, the talent scouts do at circus we also um especially for the new creations is that we also inspire them so in a new creation often they will say well this is kind of what we're looking for this is um you know the 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 theme of the show that we're we're looking at where we present things that to inspire them or kind of suggest so they might say well you know, I'll give you an example for, for, for one of the shows in Macau, they were thinking uh, tap or bolid or, or, or um, tap or um, uh, flamenco. They just wanted something rhythmic, you know. So I did present them artists in that realm, but I also said, if the theme is rhythmic, you know, I took some, there's some gypsies in Romania and I showed them that, that, that are just it's just wicked. I don't even know how to explain it to you. Show them that. And and they basically took that and they rewrote the whole opening of the show to fit those artists. And so we hired two of them. Do they say to you, Rick, just go get them. <laughs> get on a plane to Romania now and get these people. Um, or is it a case of you present, like how, how you know, because there's obviously you sort of saying to someone well look these romanian gypsies will be you know mm -hmm. could be a fan fa fa fascinating thing to put in a show you don't know though once you talk to these romanian gypsies they might not but you know the thought of being in circ or thought of going out of romania like how you know do you, do these type of acts be brought in and do they you know are they just brought in for those type of shows or do they then start to integrate amongst the other shows or or how does that work uh all of the above i mean they are definitely um they can be pretty intense political um processes you know so uh in the case of romania um i don't speak romanian and um and it, it actually, their empresario was Japanese, believe it or not, the um, the guy running it, their manager. <clears throat> so we had a partner. So, so we had a partner on site. So there are different ways of doing this. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I will have to go there. Sometimes we'll go through a partner and do this long distance. Um, sometimes it's, you know, and, and in that case, you know, taking them, you know, you might think that everyone knows Cirque du Soleil, but it's actually not true. And these people did not know Cirque du Soleil. They had never heard of it before. Um, and it, same thing when, when I had to, um, for Messi 10, I had to find uh, lion dancers, you know, the acrobatic on, on the poles, right? Yeah. Um, and the best are in Burma. Um, they're, wow. you know, it, it, oddly enough, the, the champion, the world champions are, are not in China. You know, so... Um, yeah, so the, but but there were in China. So I, I wasn't going to all these countries and, and, and there was a lot of political um, because there's a lot of in these different cultures. Often there's a lot of unspoken cultural kind of norms that I wouldn't know. Right. So I have I have someone translating the language for me, but that person is also translating the culture. You know, so they're saying, well, he's he's saying this, but what he's really meaning is this, you know, and. And, and it can get very complex and 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 uh, can can get pretty hairy sometimes. But um, but it's uh, I don't know. It's a challenge. It's an interesting it, challenge. It, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Messi because it was Mutka who Mutta, uh, yeah. when I first um, 
I first basically heard of Cirque du Soleil from sort of when it first came out, um, it being very, it seemed to me always um, very acrobatic and it kind of had its sort of, this is what it was doing, which no one had really seen on that sort of scale before. Um, and funny enough, it was uh, Mukka, when I went to Vegas the first time, he took me round, um, he was in love. Uh, I think that was his first one. He took me round and I couldn't believe when I went backstage how just it was it was phenomenal. But um, I, I always remember it, it feels like. Where, was there a point where suddenly the producers said, look, we need to switch it up. We need to go from um, sort of what we're doing already to bring in these these new things, because it seems like for the first I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years, it, it seemed very much sort of different versions of what you were seeing, but just mm -hmm. sort of presented different. And then suddenly there was all these different ideas, Michael Jackson one, um, mm -hmm. Messi. What, how, was it just going with the times or was there, a, was there an actual period of time where it was like, well, okay, maybe audiences are used to seeing what we already give? I, I think... Um... I think there was, because you have to remember that although Cirque du Soleil is an artistic company, it is also a company. It's a corporation. So I think when you have a lot of, um, you're making that much money and you, you're that high profile, at some point people get scared at the top. They get scared too. So Cirque became famous because of its magic, so to speak, and because it was different. And it, and, it, and it used to be seen as a very innovative company, right? Um, and that's what made it such a, 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 you know, an interesting thing and made it stand out. And that's what, what made its brand, basically. Um, and then you get to the point where you're making billions of dollars and, 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 and people get scared and they, they, and they start sticking to the same formula because they're afraid to change it, you know, um, and and that is kind of unfortunately what seemed was happening at Cirque, you know, was was that thing. So so the reason they would do like the Mike Jacksons and all this stuff. Well, the Michael Jacksons a little bit different, um, but um, I I I feel like they 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 started reaching out to bigger names, you know, to kind of um, solidify and and ensure revenue and that kind of thing. Michael Jackson's a little different because Michael Jackson is, uh, actually approached Cirque not the other way around. Uh, Michael Jackson, um, while he was still alive, was a big fan of Cirque. And um, he had approached Cirque many times before to do a, a project together. And, and it was Cirque who had always said no, because um, you know, from what I understand, it was never the right time. They didn't, maybe they didn't feel like it fit in with the brand. And then of course, with the scandal about the, you know, the children and all that, that Cirque wasn't really interested in getting connected with that. So when Michael Jackson died, it, the estate actually approached Cirque and said, um, you know, we want to do something, we want to create a show. Um, <clears throat> and we know that Michael Jackson had, you know, really loved Cirque and had always wanted to do something with you. So we're approaching you first to see if you'll accept. And, and it was at that point that, that Cirque said, yes, that's how that happened. Wow. Mm. It, it's interesting because from an outside view, it feels very much that it's sort of like commercialized by attaching to those names. But mm. obviously internally, especially with the Michael Jackson, it's actually very different. On that sort of route of modernizing, I'd love to now dive into a little bit 
within your time in casting, what changes have you observed of casting modernising? I guess a lot will be on a technological level. What mm. introductions have you seen come in? And I guess maybe what have you seen that you think is of benefit? And maybe if there is anything, what do you think may be of detriment from technology coming into casting as well? Um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, with, with casting, um, it, was, it was, I think on the technological side, it was mainly me and um, a, a few other colleagues within the department that were always pushing that, that, that technological aspect. Um, back in the day when I first came there, our database was built in-house, right? We buy our own IT department. Um, and, and, and at the time there, I mean, no one else had, and this was like long before any other, um, internet casting system ever existed. So, um, at the time it made sense because no one else is making it right. Um, what ended up happening is that, um, as browsers you know evolved and technology evolved the database wasn't and so we would have to in order to get it updated it was just this really long process of like budgeting and putting in you know um and the it their priority was operations right so our requests were kind of like well that's kind of last on the list right and at some point we were stuck having to use like really old browsers internally because um, it, the, the, the platform didn't, it wasn't supported by the newer browsers. So then we started this big project to, to upgrade by using white label solutions. But at the time there was no white label so solution made for casting. So we had to put different, you know, corporate apps together um, and kind of link them in order to to do to 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 have it do what we wanted it to do, um, and that technology is 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 what allows us to be able to 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 fulfill those one thousand eight hundred you know contracts per year plus you know um, and be able to to be able to choose the best of the best because um, I mean let's face it you know you might have an audition for something specific on this date but perhaps the best talent are not available on that date. So if you don't keep doing auditions, you know, or keep, you know, collecting submissions, you're going to miss that talent because they weren't available on that date. They might've been available for your, your job, but they're not available for that date. So you didn't get to see them. So you had to go with second best. So, um, so I, and I do think that that technology helps. I, 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 I think that, people in this industry don't understand technology and they're afraid of it. And that is where the lack of advancement in that area uh, exists. I think as well that, you know, we talked about questioning the status quo and questioning and, you know, critical thinking before. I think the lack of that um, contributes too, because I was, I was kind of chatting with a, a, an, an agent that I didn't know, just, it was just on Twitter. And, and we were talking about, um, um, you know, I was talking about the volume and the uh, for on a casting director's side, and I was talking about uh, the lack of of tools. You know, to um, and she was saying, "Well, that's what the agents are for." You know, we 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 filter it and just send you like two three candidates. You know, and you don't have to. And I was like, "Yeah, but um, that's one agent." You know, I get that from 20, 30 agents, and I'm and I end up with a you know a large number of people to sift through. And she said, "Oh, well." 
that's the job. I'm like, well, that's the job, you know, that's the job today, but that doesn't mean there's not a better way of doing it. And, and, and so what we do is we're today, we're electronic, but people are still sending in headshots and resumes, right? The CVs, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how we're making our first choices on. But I'm like, but that, that whole CV resume kind of weed out comes from the days when it was not possible to see people on video. Like at some point someone said, well, we have like thousands of people waiting out the door. We need to whittle this down before they come. So let's go through CVs and resumes. I mean, CVs and and photos because that's all they had. But the truth is that doesn't tell you how good anyone is. A a CV doesn't tell you anything. I, I mean, firstly, because people lie on a CV. Everyone lies on a CV. Two, if they don't lie, they embellish. Three, just because you've worked with a, a you know a big name once doesn't mean that you're actually good. You know. Um, so, but today we we're we're in a point where the technology allows us to actually see video, so we can actually whittle it down based on actual. You know, is this person potentially good for our role instead of kind of extrapolating and if the person has done their video correctly and you can see what they can do in the first 15 seconds, it's actually faster to look at the video for 15 seconds than to go through the entire CV and try to figure out, do we want to pull this, you know, do we want to bring this person in for an audition? Does that make sense? So, um, and, and all that comes from technology. It's technology that allows us to do that. Mm. I, I think something really interesting that you started to touch on is that whole method of like, when a casting director puts out a brief, then the agents will come back with the suggestions. And as that agent has said to you, like, well, that's just a job. I often look at that process and wonder if there's even a way we could use technology to get rid of that part as well. Particularly when I look at like AI developments, whether there is something that actually a technology could be put in place, then that technology knows who's out there, who gets sent to that casting director for every project, and therefore can actually just present the casting director straight away Here's a whittled down pool of 10, 20 people to take a look at. Then if you want more, press the button and more come up. Because as an agent, I often find myself sending the same talent to a casting director for five different briefs in a week. Mm. And I often have a feeling of, you must know by now that I have this talent that fit the brief. So Mm. are we all wasting time keeping on doing this suggestion method when there may be a way to speed that up? What would your feeling be on that on more of a casting end? Would you I think be worried I, about that technology? I, I am not worried about that technology, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I think people are worried. And in, 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 um, we did talk to some people in the UK, casting directors, and, and one of them did say, AI is going to take our jobs. Well, mm. AI might take some jobs, but um, often that kind of those are jobs that people don't want to do anyway. You know, but I think what AI is really going to do, because um, way back, like way, way, way back, we've been talking about AI at Circa about being able to whittle down, you know, the volume, at least, you know, get rid of the ones that are we that are just definitely not pertinent, right? So, mm-hmm. um, this this profession, you know, and you guys, you know, Stuart, you're an agent, so you you know how this is, um, and uh, I'm a casting director. We work crazy 
freaking hours. You know, it's like 24 seven, you're always on call. I've reached out to agents on a Saturday night, 11 o'clock, and they respond to me, you know, right away. I mean, that's the way this is. What AI is going to do, hopefully, is give us normal lives. You know, it's going to hopefully allow us to take a weekend, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I, I don't really like right now, we're just working crazy hours. And we're wondering, oh, AI is going to take my job. Well, the job is not healthy right now. But like the, the type of effort and hours that we have to put into this is not healthy. And I think that AI can help us get into, a, a, you know, to the same result, but with a little healthier approach to work. You know, um, and I'm American, so I'm, you know. I come from that, you know, work all the time kind of mentality. And I had to leave the United States to, to learn, oh, wow, I, it's, I can spend two hours in a cafe and read a book and, and, and drink nice coffee, you know, it, it, you know, and realize that this is, this is, this is the life part, you know, of, of the living part. So, um, yeah, I think AI can take, take out a lot of that, that initial, like really busy, boring work and, allow casting directors and agents focus on the actual you know what they're specialized in mm -hmm. you know they're not specialized in data entry and all that stuff you know um but they have to do it so why don't we take away that stuff that we all hate doing anyway and just focus on the stuff that 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 uh is the reason why we're doing this profession in the first place i absolutely I... oh go on Stuart. no go on go on go on I was going to say, I absolutely love that way you're taking it with almost finding a healthier balance in the way we work as agents and casting directors. And this is something I will often reflect on to the talents as well. Where I touched on with this method of like, they get suggested on every project. Then mm -hmm. from an agent side, we will AV check them every time, availability check. So they mm -hmm. will always know what they're up for and therefore they're always wanting the rejection. But mm -hmm. I always feel then that rejection is creating this cycle of like, a mental health problem in the industry that actually we may be able to use technology to get rid of that because mm -hmm. if you don't know what you're being considered for then you don't know to need either an acceptance or the rejection right and i think we can really like ease that out of the industry as well what would your take be on that from a casting side of like there's this i don't know if you have the same in the us but we have a, a push in the uk if you have to say yes or no to each talent mm -hmm. and I totally get why it's happening, but I think there is a level of it that isn't healthy where you hear this whole thing of the hustle. You have to do a hundred auditions to book one job. Mm -hmm. There's obviously something negative in that, which would be great if we could eliminate. Where would you take that? Well, you've touched on actually two separate things. One is the um, keeping the talent informed, which I think is very important, transparent. Mm -hmm. You know, um, in North America, we don't always do that because of the volumes and because no one has time. Um, and then there's the um, having them submit over and over and over again. And this is where, you know, at, at Cirque, that's why we did things the way we, we did is that you submit, we've auditioned you, we've seen everything you do. And then we can take that material and submit you for 10, 20 different jobs without you having to be even no. Mm -hmm. Like, so, so that way you don't have to resubmit over and over and over again. It's just being done. Right. Um, 
the downside to that is the talent thinks that they're being forgotten that, you know, oh, I'm just, you know, I did, I spent two full days doing this audition and nothing's come of it, but which is, you know, a, a lot of times that's not true. It's like, it's just that we'll only contact you when it goes to the next step. And it just saves you, it saves you the work of submitting each time. It saves you travel time, you know, for live auditions when they can already tell you that, you know, you're, you're not what they want, you know. Um, so I, I think there's a balance there. I, th I, I do think that talent should be notified when they don't get the job. You know, that's usually what happens in the normal world for every other job that's mm. not performing arts. Um, but I also think that if you have your, you know, your own database, like as a casting director, like you collect these things from Spotlight, but you might also post things on Facebook. You might, you know, um, use casting networks. You use backstage and or or you know go through friends and stuff. Um, you want all that in your own database because otherwise you're like logging into five, six different places, you know. And then you've got to say, can you send your information? Then you're copy pasting, just a lot of work, you know. And then. Once you have that, and you know, as you work with these people, you have history. You can say, "Oh, they've you know been submitted for five, six, seven different projects." Um, you know, it's 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 much easier on both ends in that you know um, what this person's been through, and they don't have to deal with every single time you present them for something. Um, only when you know, and when you contact them, they know that oh, at at the very least, this is a callback. Like, you know, mm -hmm. and, and and when they submit, a lot of times they're submitting the same video anyway. So if you already have the video, why do you need to have them send the same thing over and over again? You you have it. You know what it's about. Just show it to the client, you know, mm. get it done, you know. I guess in a way it's almost introducing more scouting into dance as well. I'm a huge sports fan, so I'll often try and reflect our casting system against maybe like transfers in football. And in football, obviously, if someone wants to buy a new player, they're never going to put out a brief going, we need someone who does this exact position. Mm. They're going out there and they're watching the games. In our sense, they're watching the performances, watching the new video that came out on YouTube, etc. And therefore, knowing what's going on. And therefore, instead of them having to get all of these people pitched and then say no, they actually already kind of know who to go for when it comes in. And I guess that mm -hmm. almost refers to what you're saying with building that database. There definitely is something in this database which can really ease things on the industry. I'm so thrilled to hear that that is kind of the approach that Cirque has. I really hope that that can catch on. Um, well, there, there are a few other companies who have who've done that. Cirque has, has done it the longest. I know Universal um, Studios Japan. Um, they they outsource their casting, but that, um, they also use that a, a, a database type system. Um, I know Disney does. Um, Royal Caribbean does that, but most companies are still doing like uh, you know RWS. You know RWS. Now before the pandemic, um, uh, they they were doing everything on paper, so. Mm -hmm. You know, once again, you like you do these auditions, you have the stack of CVs, and then you recycle it, and then you start again from scratch every single time. That has never made any sense to me. That's that's a bit like you going, okay, I want to have this party. I'm meeting all these people, collecting their contact information. You have this party, and at the end of the party, you delete all that information. Say, I want another party, and then try to go and get that information again. It makes no sense. 
you would keep it in your address book and then just contact them and say, I'm having another party, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's the normal way of doing things. But in casting, we don't do that. I don't understand why we don't do that. Well, Rick, that, that's, that's the old, um, it's the traditions of the industry, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, we, want to, we want to go on in a second to what you're, we want you to sort of tell us about your new companies and what you're doing now. Um, but um, what I can see is we will definitely have to have you on, in, on again in the future for like a part two, just to literally talking, talk about the casting Mm-hmm. in the casting industry because it's fascinating and there's loads i can i can i can feel it and i can feel uh just i can feel you bailey as well sort of brimming with a hundred other questions yeah, just on yeah. casting <laughs> um however i just want to before we go on to uh what you're doing now um i want to just chuck one little thing at you that me and bailey discussed in our podcast which uh which went out last week or this week should i say um are, let me ask you this question. Are auditions work? Are auditions work? Yes. Auditions are a lot of work. As in, should auditions be paid? Oh, you mean that in that sense? Yes. Um, <clears throat> well, I think after a certain... Uh, after certain it depends on how far that goes you know so if you were a um like a secretary applying and then you go to an interview an audition is an interview is what it is right so you would not get paid but you also don't go through like three four five six interviews for that there's maybe one or two you know um and people are are expected to make that decision i think in the artistic world we tend to um you know we have Uh, creators that tend to be a little afraid to make that decision and so that's where we get into like you know audition you know and then call back after call back after call back at at some point which i think um either you know those 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 subsequent um callbacks should either be paid or creators should just come to a decision you know, and and I think that we're just so afraid of making the wrong decision. Um, and and listen, no matter how many callback auditions you do, you're going to make some wrong decisions. That is what we call life. You know, you can't be right 100% of the time. So you just have to own your decision. And that's the part where I think in this industry we get um, caught up is that people don't want to take the responsibility for making a wrong decision. But that's that's life, you know, and and so what we end up doing is um, wasting other people's time because you can't make a decision. And that's where I think, um, you know, you know, I don't think that the first audition should be paid because that's an interview, you know, after that. Okay, okay. so what you because you use the uh, you use the example of a of a secretary. When they go for their interview, they don't actually do any secretary work. They just pre- they just talk and they present of what they could do. Where mm-hmm. for wh- why should that be any different? Because you can't. I can't think of any other profession where you would have to on your interview actually do the work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I understand where you're coming from, but yeah. we're also in a profession where. Um... You know, there's there is no other profession where you would ask someone's ethnicity or or sex or height or, you know, 
either. You know, it's a very particular industry that is like no other industry. So there are some differences that have to be taken into account. You know, um, I, 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 I do understand where you're coming from, um, but I, I think it's more, you know, with respect to respect of people's time on the casting and production side, because <clears throat> I, auditions are already very expensive endeavors. And I don't think it would be even possible if um, if they were to pay everyone every time that they do an audition. So, so, I, so just to interrupt you there, what if <laughs> then? Uh, what if if it, it if it was put into the budget, and so the budget had well, this is how much here's our budget, and that part of the budget is for auditioning. Would that make cast directors go right? Now I need to be more on it because I can't, I haven't got time and the budget to pay 200 people. I need to know my business more and perhaps only present five or six people who could be right for the job. And that for their time, they would then be paid because it's, it's, it's less of a, um, less of a more, you know, less people being put out kind of thing. What do you mm -hmm. think of that? Um, as far as reducing the amount of people that you bring in, I'm all for that. And and we used to, we used to argue that all the time within Cirque, you know, um, <clears throat> like what, why does a director need to see 200 people? We, we already know that only 10 are even close to being pertinent. Um, I, 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 at Cirque, what we used to do when it got to that point, we only had three or four candidates and we brought them into an audition. Um, we didn't pay them, but we paid their travel expenses. We, you know, their plane ticket, you know, because we would cast from all over the world. So not everyone's in the same, you know, we'd pay for the plane ticket, you know, um, and, uh, you know, lodging for that, whatever, staying overnight and all that stuff. That, um, I, I I do think when, when possible, that should be done, you know, Um I, I'm not sure that they should be should receive actual pay for that first audition unless it is like a second or third that you keep calling them back, you know, because uh, there is a, a certain part of um, the fact that it's an interview that we have to take into account. But I, I do think that it's a balance on, on both sides. Um, I do think that a lot of casting directors, a lot of production companies, uh, for whatever reason, bring people in too too much just way too much like take too long to make decisions they uh, i think a lot of time is wasted um i think that a lot of candidate time is wasted as well that doesn't need to be um but that has to do with uh i think mentality critical thinking like, it, you know a, a lot of like like, like getting off of, uh, maybe like getting off on the power of doing auditions and and being the person selecting. There is definitely that. I have mm -hmm. to say, um, yes, the power trip, you know, and once again, I have to, I'm generalizing because it's not everyone who, who gets off on that, but I, I have seen it a lot. And I know that does, um, that does come into play. You know, I look at it differently from, from my perspective. I feel like that when I'm there in front of people auditioning them, um, I'm actually responsible. You know, for for them, I'm I'm responsible for their well being. I'm responsible for giving them a, a chance to to be seen in the best light possible. Um, I I think everybody wants to be the boss, but nobody wants the responsibility that comes with being the boss. 
because when the audition fails, it is the boss's fault, you know, but most people want to be the boss, don't see it that way. They just see the power part of it. Because the, the, yeah, the reason, the reason we, I just mentioned this because we did, um, one of our topics last week was about this because there, we saw a, there's a, what is it, Bailey? What are they called in, um, in America? I, I think it's auditionsawork.org. There's like an yeah. organization who were yeah. like campaigning against SAG-AFTRA on this sort of auditions and being paid for self-tapes, all of these kind of things. Have, have you actually um, seen that movement at all, Rick? I have seen it, but I haven't mm. really delved into it. So I don't know anything about what they're doing. It's, it's, I, I, I kind of feel like it's, it's a bit like a um, going down a wormhole because once you start to question these type of things, the whole question of people's roles and how much it is needed, for example, in the perform on a performing arts level, we often talk about, um, you know, dancers needing representation, but then the difference between representation and management and mm -hmm. when they need it and whether we actually need um, agents at a performing arts level or whether we need management, um, you know, because it's, it's a very different thing casting in the performing arts where um, it feels like they're filling up a, a, a hole to satisfy a lot of out-of-work performers than when you are casting in Hollywood, for example, and they know time is money and they're only bringing in three or four people um, mm. who are, you know, top-notch and could get the job. Um, I went off on a bit on a tangent, now, so I don't know what the, if there was a question in there or not. Well, um, well, in, in, when you're talking about you're you're talking about leads and supportings, though, um, in Hollywood for for like smaller roles, there are catalog. I mean, you get tons and tons and tons of people. Even though they go through the agents, the agents will send tons of people. You know, depending on what the role is, um, and, and and I think that you know, do we need agents? I think we do, but I do think that the agent role is going to be evolving because you know um and i think it's 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 actually easier so a production company that has their database people who have applied before maybe some people they've hired before isn't it easier for an agent for a production company to say is this person is joe available if he is let's just book him yeah. instead of saying can you send me a whole bunch of people and then we'll go like back and forth looking at these people asking questions to end up with Joe anyway. Wouldn't it be just easier to say, can we just book Joe? That's a, like a five minute conversation versus like days and days and days of work and filtering, you know? So, um, and then the agent's job is negotiating that contract, which artists still need, right? So, so I, I think that maybe the submission process might, that, that kind of work might in the future start going down a little bit. And then more in the emphasis would be just on that negotiation and representing the artist. Does that make sense? It does. It, 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 I suppose it opens up that another can of worms of how much opportunity people can get unless they know or are part of certain organizations or, or certain things. Um, because the more, for example, when I worked as a choreographer, I would often try and use the same people all the time. Not because mm. I didn't want to give opportunity to new people, but you know as well as I know, it, you know those people 
Um, it's not just about how good they are. It's about, you know, who can you face at seven in the morning in a hotel having breakfast um, <laughs> or sitting on a 12 hour, 12 hour flight. Um, so it's it's if you can have the same people being used over and again, absolutely. You know, you're always wanting those um, repeat clients. We well, it's them. the reduction of risk. We already know what to expect. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, right. We need to uh, we need to give you some time to to plug what you're doing now. Um, we've got three things which we wrote down, um, but tell us what they are. So there's choreography online. Mm -hmm. You've um, IODC and mm -hmm. Jamar Gig. Tell us about them. Okay. So choreography online is 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 my company and and it's a original um, purpose that's still there is to create a licensing platform for choreographers to be able to um, sell licenses to their work. So as a choreographer, you create work and um, you do the performance. And then after that, you go on to the next project, but you still have this piece that's kind of sitting there collecting dust. Um, whereas maybe there's company in Australia that would love to be able to perform that piece. Maybe there's one in the States, maybe, you know, all over the world. Um, but they might not have the money to ship, you know, kind of fly you over and have you create something or set a, a piece. Well, the idea was to have a license where they can buy a license to perform your piece. And what you would have is videos showing them, teaching them the piece, right? And that way it's kind of passive income. And, um, you know, if, if, if people do that, then you could be just making money by doing nothing from your past work, right? Just like they do in music, right? So that's, that was the idea behind choreography online. And I think that um, up till now, choreographers have had a hard time just wrapping their head around the concept. You know, I've, I, I've had people, you know, come on the platform and say, well, for a license, uh, you know, one performance, I want to charge ten thousand, you know, ten thousand dollars. I'm like, that doesn't really make sense, you know. It's like, if if I have a song and it costs me fifty thousand dollars to produce, when I sell it, I don't charge the public fifty thousand dollars, you know. <laughs> so so it's that kind of concept that I think choreographers have a hard time wrapping their head around. But that that's what that is. Um, IODC, uh, the International Online Dance Competition. So the, that that came um, when COVID hit, um, but the idea was to use a competition, an online competition, uh, for several reasons, um, to as as kind of like an audition. So instead of you know having a competition, which is just like okay, we're gonna you know um, dance and get prizes and you know whatever, um, I would invite like agents and I invite like you know, production companies to look at the finalist gallery and say, oh, I am interested in these people. And then I can, you know, that the company would connect them, you know. So it's kind of like your first audition. And at the same time, yeah, you can win the, you know, prizes like like that. Um, the other thing is to just uh, introduce different kinds of dance and different kinds of levels to people all over the world, you know, to be able to 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 introduce people to things that may they may not have ever seen before, which is we get we do get comments like that that say, oh wow, it just there's stuff here that I've never seen before. And so to hear that, um, I say, well, that's 
that is part of, of what we're trying to do, right? And if we can get some of these people hired by another company, that's even, you know, that's even better, right? So that's what the IODC is. Um, and uh, Jammergig. So Jammergig, we talked about, you know, casting databases and, and how, um, um, you know, the, the, the inefficiencies of the traditional way of casting the, the processes. And what we try to do is we take the idea of a database and a submission system and give people the power of being able to use that. So, um, so it's a way of, even if you use Spotlight, if you use Circus Talk and if you use um, um, Backstage or whatever, um, Facebook, social media, to be able to have people apply and have it all come into one place where you can assess, but you can assess like skills and um, artistic ability, um, but you can do it with, you can actually score them really quickly, but all of that becomes filterable. So in the future you say like, I need a solo ballet dancer. So on a scale of one to 10, I need someone who's a nine, but they also have to be do a little bit of hip hop. So five out of 10, uh, they also have to act five out of 10. You can like whittle that down. I needed that person to 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 be within a hundred kilometers of Manchester. Whittle that down, like these really really powerful filters, and then be able to take that list, and then message them all, and have all of that audited, so you you know who's been messaged messaged and all that kind of stuff. And there are a lot of other functions, but the idea is to 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 take on the casting director side, and give them a tool to make their job faster and easier. Instead of, you know, I, I, I do understand that the, um, the, the, the artist needs something really simple and easy, which we do as well, but the casting directors do as well. And that's, those, those are those three things. That, that's what we're doing. So, so you're, you're creating um, like, a, like a, I suppose, a, a point system for casting directors for the, for the artists. What if there was one already out there which was public knowledge for the artists. Like a, in football, they have Opta. Uh, it's like a stats thing. Mm -hmm. um, it, would that help or would that, would that be detrimental to your business? No, it, it wouldn't change anything because um, these are, um, you, 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 it's, it's your own team's assessments. Okay, right. so we have assessments on the skills, but we also have assessments on... Um, the role that you're trying to cast. So you might have two, three people who have all the exactly the, the great skill level and all the skills needed, but for some reason, one is better for the role than the others, for whatever reason. This one's like, her hair color is just a little bit better, whatever, you know? Um, so you have that as well. But when, we, when, when I say skills, it's also soft skills. So you can say, we, you know, someone you've cast before and you notice that um, she's really great, but she's a really slow learner. So you can actually put learning speed in there as well. So, um, or it could be the opposite. She's really, really fast. So the next time you need to cast someone, urgent, it's tomorrow, you know, you can actually filter down to, okay, I've got 20 people that are perfect, but she needs to be on stage tomorrow. Which ones are the fastest learners? You can like whittle it down to the top three and then send that to your client say these these three fit your role and they learned really really fast so there's there's all that as well there's analytics there's all kinds of stuff in it but but uh, basically 
I've, I've pulled from my experience, from one of my other colleagues' uh, experience, um, and, and also client you know, feedback, and we just keep improving it and making it um, just as, as easy as possible. So with that point system, I'd love to hear with that, is that something that the casting directors then do as like a part of their job where maybe they'll dedicate a few hours a day to putting points on talent? Or is that something they're doing kind of like brief by brief as they're suggested people? It's, it, it's as they want. You know, at Cirque, we used to do that as part of as they come in. We would just do it on everybody. Mm-hmm. But you can also do it only when you have a casting call. So you can, you can have them all go into you know the bucket, and as you're um, uh, you're you're going through them, um, and we made it quickly so the people who are just completely not pertinent, pertinent or maybe all the amateurs, you can actually weed them out really quick and just go tick, 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 tick. and then will it down to the people that you want to look into a little bit more in depth, and then instead of like taking notes on this person is really good in ballet, blah blah blah. blah which is not really searchable, um, not accurately. You can just say, okay, as far as skill levels, seven, three, five, four. And then if you want to make an extra note, you can. And then in the future, that, that's, it's on their profile. So you can actually um, whittle down you know, your entire database by those skills or whatever other parameters like hair color and all that, the normal stuff. Um, geolocation you can save those searches if it's something that you you search for often and instead of you know for a lot of the casting calls um you might not even have to post it you say we actually have a good list of 10 people right here let's just send this to the client so for that casting call you spent what three minutes instead of two weeks does that make sense Mm, interesting um we're going to have to wrap it up soon, but um, just we always finish off uh, with the same type of question to our, our um, to our guests, which Bailey, you'll ask in a second. But I just want to just want to ask you a fun thing. I am a massive fan of the Prodigy. Your haircut is inspired by or either either how long have you had your haircut? That's what I want to know. And do you know who Keith Flint is? Um, I do not know who that is. Oh my word! You you um, you you need to see a picture of Keith Flint. Unfortunately, he um he committed suicide a few years ago. But he's in. He was the lead singer of a massive massive band called Prodigy, and he has a carbon copy haircut. So I want to ask you about your hair. Are you? Do you have a punk background, or is that a, more of a? Circus? I I don't I don't have a punk background. Um, it actually um. <laughs> where it came from so when i was dancing with a lot of, a lot of human steps i used to have i used to actually have hair um and i had this one long, me too me too yeah <laughs> those days are gone yeah um i used to have one long like piece that would w- kind of wavy that would hang in front of my face and that used to be my signature and then i stopped dancing and cut my hair like more normal um and one of the things that I just don't like dealing with in the morning is spending time doing things like hair. So what I would do is I just take some pace and just go, that's good enough. Right. And that's <laughs> kind of where it came from. And then I started losing hair in the middle, but I just still kept doing that. And so that's where it came from. It just kind of like evolved that way. 
And by and by then, everybody had recognized me like that, and I was like, I'll just keep it. Okay, so you might have heard of one of their songs. Do you remember Firestarter? Yeah, that's Keith Flynn, and he. He's, oh, okay, that's it. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, and everyone. Green. Everyone. Yeah, everyone keeps. Yeah, people call me Firestarter. <laughs> awesome, Bailey. Um, do you want to do you want to give our, our last question that, that we like to ask? Yeah, so this is like a signature question that we ask every guest, which is, let's take Vogue magazine. If they were to write a column about you in 50 years' time, about your career, your legacy, and kind of just what you've done for the industry, what you've done for the world, what people will remember about your character, what would you ideally like them to be saying that you would feel like yourself really would sum up you and how you would like to be remembered? I would like to be remembered as having a positive but massive evolutionary impact on this industry. You know, I want I want to be known as someone who took the industry someplace. You know, mm. I, it's so clear that you're doing that as well. When we hear about such as Jammer Gig and choreography online. It's so clear that you are driving everything into the future, which is so needed, filling these gaps with the infrastructure. It's been an absolute joy to have this conversation today, and there's so much more we could go down as well. So hopefully we will pick back up on this in future. So to round us off for the day, if you've enjoyed this episode, which I'm sure you will have done, hit subscribe on the channel, click the like button, and turn on your notification bell so you know about next week's episode as well. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Um, I definitely think we can we could get another one in down the line. Once we've built the podcast a bit more, um, we'll bring you back and we'll do uh we'll 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 dive in on some of those more controversial kind of casting issues. But before we go, is there is there any um where can people find your work? Um you've got a few websites. What um tell tell us and we can we can put them down below. Well, there's choreography online is choreography.online. Pretty easy. That's the URL. Um, um, IODC is um, IODC.online. Um, and Jammer Gig is Jammer Gig, J A M A R G I G.com. Amazing. Before we end, I just want to say if you haven't seen our latest guest episodes, do check them out. We've got uh, episodes with Adrian Gass and Brendan Hansford online. We've got some great um, guests coming up in the future weeks. And that just leads me to say one more thing. And that's thank you so much, Rick. It's been it's been so interesting. Um, and as I say, we'd love to get you on again to delve more just into casting. I think there's so much we could uh, casting and industry issues. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Yes, we'll see you next week um, for another episode.